You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. You can be seated. Well, this morning we have a true treat. We have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Jim Singleton. Jim is no stranger to Third Church. He worshiped here while he was studying at Union Seminary quite a few years ago, but also some of you may know his face because he was a frequent visitor while his father-in-law, Dr. Bill Long, was our senior pastor. Jim and his wife, Sarah, Sarah is also a pastor, are the parents of two adult children. They have three grandchildren, including a seven-year-old grandson who actually lives with them and seems to share Jim's passion for baseball. Um, Jim spent much of his career as a pastor, serving in churches in Washington State and Texas, and most recently as senior pastor of First Pres Colorado Springs, a very large downtown church. In 2012, Jim and Sarah moved to uh, the Boston area where Jim now serves as the assistant professor for pastoral leadership and evangelism at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And Sarah is a pastor in a nearby town. Jim is passionate about equipping congregations to revitalize the way they approach ministry. And lots of us here at Third, both parish leaders and other leaders, had a chance to hear from Jim yesterday on that very issue. Jim is also passionate about helping pastors, um, particularly helping them thrive in this really difficult season of ministry. And he's coming alongside many of them in the Northeast and beyond through his work at Gordon-Conwell. And while you may not have met Jim before, the imprint of his life is largely on our congregation um, in beautiful ways. Um, Our denomination was uh, formed not that long ago, actually, and Jim was a key part of the thinking and prayer and organization behind our denomination. And Jim has been pastoring and mentoring for so many years, he also mentors a cohort of other pastors from across the nation. And that cohort includes our very own Corey Widmer. And one final note about Jim before he joins us. In addition to having an encyclopedic knowledge of baseball history and apparently church history, and being a much beloved professor at Gordon-Conwell, Jim might be a bit of a prankster. In fact, he recently received a bit of payback when his students got into his office and flipped all of his books around and filled the entire office with balloons. That, I got to see a picture of that last night and it was quite fun. So Jim, thank you for bringing God's word to us this morning and for the way that you and Sarah have invested so deeply in the lives of so many, including our denomination and Corey. Before Jim preaches, we're gonna read the scripture passage together. Let me pray before we read God's word. Lord, you are the living word. And yet we have this beautiful word that you've left behind. Open our eyes and hearts as we read it now. And we pray it in Christ's name. 
The scripture reading comes today from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for the very kind introduction. And I love being back in this place. It has been uh, one of those places in God's spiritual home for me for many years as I've come and gone, uh, as was here for Corey's installation a number of years ago. But my goodness, the worship in this place, even this day, is just so alive and electric in the midst of masks, in the midst of online and COVID, and yet profoundly, this is a thin place where you can experience God's great presence in our midst. So I love the text that we just heard, and I want to pray and invite us into that. And I want all of you to pray, Lord, what would you have me discover in this text today? Lord, this is your word. You're speaking to us, and we pray that you would open us in ways that allow us to see what right now we can't see. Would you open our eyes? For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. There are just so many experiences that you and I have where we, we just can't see something that we're about to get to see. Maybe you had a job offer once. And you thought, no way, I would ever leave this company and go to that company. I'm happy where I am. And yet a few discussions occurred, an interview occurred. And next thing you know, you're in this new job in this new desk and you just didn't see it a month ago. Or maybe you're looking for a house and you're kind of wandering around and you find out about one in a location you kind of like and you look at it and goes, ah, it needs paint. The landscaping's not that good. The price is too high. I, I don't see it. I just don't see it. And yet, a few things change. A few ideas come to you. You begin to look around, and eight weeks later, that's home. You just couldn't see it. And yet, there it came. I bet in March of 2020, you had no idea what we were just about to go. You just couldn't see it. Somebody said there's some strange uh, disease passing around, and it may have landed in Seattle. And yeah, 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 we had this stuff before. And wow, was that ever disruptive. But we couldn't see it, could we? You know, in the fall of 1975, Sarah Long came to the college where I was, and she was a freshman, and woo, I said, I think the Lord is leading me. I see it, Lord. I see it. This is going to be my wife, I think. Sarah couldn't see it quite as quickly as I could. 
the 22-inch red afro might have gotten in the way. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, after about 43 touches by the Lord, God did show her that we were to be married, and we've been married 43 years now. But she just couldn't quite see it. Thank you. Thank you. The problem so often with God in our sight is not a pair of glasses. It's not like we need another pair of glasses. It's that we need to attend to what God is showing us, and we just have amazing ways of not seeing. And sometimes it requires a mirror in a certain location to our hearts so that we can actually see. It's called a blind spot or something we can't observe. For instance, you're looking at me. I look at me in the mirror a lot. <clears throat> I do not have the self-perception that I am a bald person. <laughs> the choir has a very different view of me right now. <clears throat> and they're able to see that right up on top, I've got a yarmulke that is kind of transparent. Now, when I rub my hand over my head, I actually feel hair, but there's not much there. You see, it takes something at the right angle for us to finally see. Our text today is about sight. It's about seeing something that is not immediately obvious. And I want to take you into that text because this is a very unusual passage in so many ways. It starts off with a blind man. There are lots of blind folks in the New Testament. Only one of them, believe it or not, has a name that we now know. That's Bartimaeus. He will be two chapters later in chapter 10. There is a blind man who is nameless in John 9 who actually gives us one of the very best lines in all of hymnody, do you know how it goes? I once was, but now, you know, amazing grace in John Newton's great hymn. The, the blind person in Mark 8 is the only person of any disability that Jesus had to touch twice. Is that strange to you? What happened? What is up with a second touch? The story happens in Bethsaida. That's up on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, way up north. Like the lame man in Mark chapter two, other people bring this person to Jesus. And the other people beg Jesus to touch this man. He does a couple of unusual things. He drags him out of the village to do the healing, probably to avoid distraction. And then he does something that would have been done in that day and time, but seems a bit non-hygienic to us, especially in a COVID crisis. He spits on the man's eyes. I don't think I would particularly want that, but at that day and time, that was quite fitting and quite uh, expected. And then he asks this man a question. Do you see anything? Do you see anything? And the man looked up and replied, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Now, there's a clue there. 
that this man, unlike the man in John 9, was not born blind. It means he has seen people before. And it means that now he is seeing something, but it's not clear. You know, a person has some affinity with some likenesses of trees. There is a trunk. We have a trunk. There are branches. Well, we have limbs. And so for some reason, as he's looking, I see what is obviously people, but I don't see them clearly. I don't see their distinguishing features. They look like trees walking around. I've felt that a bit in the last year and a half because with your masks on, you don't actually look like you. I can't, I can't see some of your distinguishing features. How important it is to see nose and mouth and lips because it adds so much. But you see, in this case, he sees, but he doesn't quite see. So Jesus touches him a second time, and then verse 26 says he sees everything clearly. Everything clearly. I think there is a reason. Mark places the story right here in chapter 8. Because this is really the lesser known passage of chapter 8. The great passage of chapter 8 starts immediately after where Jesus goes up north of this place to Caesarea Philippi in the midst of all of these idolatrous issues. He says, who do men say that I am? What's the rumor about me? And the disciples say, well, some people say you're this and some people say you're that. And then Jesus asks a second question, but who do you say that I am? And do you remember who pipes up? Do you remember who says something at this moment? It was Peter. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And suddenly that great big bell starts ringing, ding, 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 right answer, right answer, good job, Peter. And then Jesus goes on to explain what that's going to mean, that he is the Christ. And it involves suffering, and it involves a cross, and it involves death. And you remember what Peter does next? He rebukes Jesus. Let me give you a little aside. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's not smart to rebuke Jesus. Would you tell that to your neighbor? I mean, that's, it's just not something you do. Okay, now that you know that, you have to realize that Jesus has to then turn to Peter and invite him to get behind me, Satan. The harshest thing that he ever says to, to anyone, one of his disciples, get behind me, Satan. You see, what goes on in that text is actually being foreshadowed in the second touch text. Because Peter does see, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he just doesn't see clearly. And I wonder how many of us don't see clearly. Who is this Jesus? One of the great lines that I've loved through the years was offered by Dick Halverson, who was at one point 
uh, Presbyterian pastor in the D.C. area in Chevy Chase, fourth pres, later chaplain to the Senate. He would say in an evangelistic setting, give all that you know of yourself to all that you know of Christ. Give all that you know of yourself to all that you know of Christ, recognizing that there are going to be times in your life where you learn more about yourself. And there'll be times in your life where you learn more about Christ. And so you've got to give again. That's why I don't normally sing that wonderful hymn, I Surrender All. Because actually, I have not surrendered all. And neither have you. So I like to sing, I surrender some. But it just doesn't have the same ring as surrendering all. I intend to surrender all. I want to surrender all. But you see, I still need more touches from Jesus to live the good life, which is the series we're in right now, you might just need a second or third touch today. Is God beginning to perhaps suggest that for you? Now, there comes another moment, and I'm going to weave in a second text here. There comes another moment in Acts chapter 10 where Paul, Peter once again is going to have to have a touch. He has a dream. He's in Joppa. He has a dream in that, that, or a vision, you might call it. He's up on the roof, and he sees a sheet of unclean animals coming down to him in this dream with the words spoken, take and eat. And three times he says, no. I will never eat or touch anything unclean. So this little thing is going on in Peter. No, 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 no. I see trees. I see people, but they look like trees walking around. At the same moment, Cornelius has had a vision that he's supposed to send to Joppa to get a man named Peter who is staying with Simon the Tanner. So he sends some people there. Right when Peter has his vision, the door is knocking and there are people at the door, Gentiles, working for a Roman, asking Peter to come to their house. First answer would be no. Not touching anything unclean. Because you see, at this point in Peter's life, he's never been in a Gentile's house. He's never had a meal with a Gentile. That would be unthinkable. But the Spirit is ready to rip open another barrier. And when the knock comes, Peter goes, he gets to Cornelius' house, he probably eats with him, and he watches the Spirit fall on Cornelius and all in that house. He had to have another touch to be able to see. When you look throughout church history, there is a history of second touches. Most renewal movements are because something was forgotten. The first great awakening came when our religion was rather formal and doctrinal and cold and arid, and God breathed life into places through people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and in Virginia through people like 
Archibald Alexander and Samuel Davies, and the first great awakening rises up and people begin to experience a faith that they have just thought about in their heads. A second touch. St. Patrick in Ireland was captured by the Irish and put into slavery, and somehow he managed to escape and got back to his home in England. And while there, he felt like God was calling him to go back to those very Irish captors and bring the gospel to them. I might have picked somebody else. But God was opening his eyes to something he had not seen, the possibility of going back to the very people who persecuted him. The Protestant Reformation occurs for lots of doctrinal reasons, but one of the things that happened in medieval Catholicism is that we forgot to really see people. We saw an institution, and suddenly in the Reformation, we saw individuals again in an amazing kind of way. I could go on and on with renewal movements, but we so often need a second touch because a second touch unearths for us these blind spots that we've got that we just don't see. People in churches today are often rather blind about our pride or our greed or our lusts or even our racisms. Last summer, we kind of had to come face to face with, have we missed something? Have we thought it was all solved and it's not all solved? There is a constant sense of wanting to put somebody in some other group that we don't really see. And sometimes that happens economically, sometimes that happens educationally, sometimes that happens ethnically. Do we need a second touch? Could it be us? Because you see, what's so interesting about Mark 8 to me is that it's about actually seeing people. It's about having a genuine interest in people. And some of us on a Myers-Briggs are introverts, not extroverts, and we think we kind of get a pass on, we don't really have to invest in people. I, I need to go read a book. Thank you. Uh, but, but that's not what the book says. I, I'm an introvert on a Myers-Briggs. I don't think we always get a pass. I think we're called to be genuinely interested. You know, when Paul is sending Timothy to the Philippians, this is in chapter two of Philippians, there is a verse there that's kind of a throwaway verse. Nobody's ever put it on a magnet to go on your refrigerator. But it says, I'm sending Timothy to you soon because he will have a genuine interest in your welfare. And then he says, the others, now who are the others? The others is probably Paul's little stable of other young evangelists. The others are still interested in themselves. Well, you know, if Paul was looking at the stable in which I was in, he would have said that about me because I still tend to orbit around my little self. Do you have a genuine interest in other people? That means you see them as people and not as trees walking around. I can just sort of see a bunch of trees walking around. My mother was Dutch, and she loved to shape my life, sometimes for good, a few times maybe not. But here was the drill every Sunday when we got home from church. 
every Sunday. She would say, Jimmy, were there any new kids in Sunday school? I'd go, Mom, I was not keeping role. I was playing with my friends. Then she would say, picture the room. I'd close my eyes, I'd picture the room. Oh, there was a new kid there. Yeah. Second question. How did they feel? Mom, I am not a psychologist. I don't know. I'm six years old. I'm not paying attention to those things. She said, well, were they happy or sad? Picture the room. Actually, they were crying. I remember that now. I noticed. Oh, third question. Was there anything you could have done about it? That's kind of Dutch responsibility, but that's the way we work in that culture. I guess I could have gone over and volunteered to play with them. Right answer. See, I don't naturally have this interest in other people. I am intrinsically self-centered. Is anybody with me on that? Okay, I just want to see if I'm not alone. So it took a mother and it's taken the Holy Spirit a long time to have me notice not trees walking around, but people. What about you? What about you? See, I think this text starts with Jesus wanting to touch us in places where we need desperately to be touched. I can actually picture Jesus walking through this sanctuary and maybe through the living rooms of those watching online and just offering, would you like a second touch? Or would it be a third maybe? A fourth? Do you need a fourth? A fifth? Would you like a sixth touch? Because I don't think we are finished. I don't think we have surrendered all. I think we've surrendered some. And I think Jesus is beckoning you today to just ask him for another touch that would open your eyes. So we're gonna sing a song now about open the eyes of my heart. And as you sing it, would you just be asking in your heart Jesus to come by and just touch you one more time so that you can see the people that God needs for you to see. Let's pray. Lord, let your word now sit in our hearts in such a place that we really have a desire for your touch. And as we sing, would you please move about us by your spirit and open our eyes. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.